Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Daniel Smith. With us today is Malta Villa, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago, and he is here to talk about non-monotonic logic. Malta Villa, welcome. Glad to be here. Okay, non-monotonic logic. That's quite the mouthful. Maybe the best way into what non-monotonic logic is, to, it would be to talk about what monotonic means. and what, So what's monotonic logic? And then I guess non-monotonic would be like the opposite of that. Yeah. So let's just start with a brief explanation of what logic is. So, you know, in everyday life and in philosophy, we encounter a lot of things called arguments, lines of reasoning that start with certain assumptions and are supposed to establish a certain kind of conclusion. And there's an intuitive distinction between good and bad arguments. So if you've contracted the Martian flu, you're going to die within 48 hours. And the doctor tells you that you contracted the Martian flu. You have good reason to start making arrangements because the information that you have seems to give you every reason to believe that you only have 48 hours to live. So that seems to be like, you know, in sense of a good line of reasoning. On the other hand, if we know that if we don't operate on the patient, the patient is going to die within two hours, and then we decide that we are going to operate on the patient, it seems a little bit of a bad conclusion to draw that the patient is not going to die within two hours. So that seems to be a bad line of reasoning. So there's this intuitive distinction between good and bad arguments, and logic is just nothing but the study of the methods and principles used to distinguish correct from incorrect reasoning. It's going to help us decide which types of arguments are good and which are bad. So this is what logic is. Now, so as I said, an argument basically consists of a set of assumptions, which we sometimes call premises, and a conclusion that's the kind of stuff that you want to establish on the basis of the premises. And a good argument is then just one where the conclusion follows in some intuitive sense from your premises or where the assumptions license the inference of the conclusion. Now, when you take your intro to logic class, you will, all things being equal, be presented with a monotonic conception of logic. And a monotonic conception of logic is basically just the following one. If the conclusion of an argument follows from the premises, that is, if the premises license the inference of the conclusion, then the conclusion also follows from the premises and every bit of additional information that you might think of. So intuitively, what a monotonic conception of logic is, is just that whatever has been established in discourse and reasoning by the information you have or the assumptions you make, continues to be established in discourse and reasoning regardless of how much additional information you receive. So that's you know, the notion of monotonicity. And as you indicated, a non-monotonic conception of logic is then just one 
which denies monotonicity. That is, there may be cases in which a conclusion or a bit of information follows from a bunch of assumptions, is a good line of reasoning, but is no longer a good line of reasoning, i.e. does no longer follow if you add an additional bit of information to the assumptions that you have. So that, I find that a pretty puzzling idea. I feel like when I think about a line of reasoning being good, I feel like what you're saying is, well, if the assumptions are true and the conclusion follows in an intuitive sense of follows, then the conclusion's going to be true. And it seems weird to me that if you just add more information, that's going to make the conclusion no longer follow. So if I've caught the Martian flu, and we know that if you catch the Martian flu, you die within 48 hours, it just seems like I'm going to die within 48 hours. It doesn't matter if we add more information like where the flu came from or what my favorite color is. So why would anybody think that non-monotonic inferences are are real or legitimate? No, good. So, I mean, I think that's right. Uh, I think one thing that one needs to recognize is that there's a very good reason for why when we teach intro to logic, we tell people that logic is monotonic because there's a very intuitive notion of a good argument which basically rests on the notion of truth, as you've described it in your case. So a very standard conception of a good argument is one on which an argument is a good one, just in case the truth of the premises guarantees the truth of the conclusion. In other words, there's just no way things could turn out so that the premises are true and the conclusion is false. And I think that's a very intuitive notion of, of what a good argument is. And I agree that it's very hard to see how there could be room for a non-monotonic conception of logic if that is the notion of good argument that you're working with. Because, you know, if the truth of the premises guarantees the truth of the conclusion, how could additional information or additional facts or lack thereof have anything to do with that kind of relation? So I think one challenge is then to somehow like make sense of a notion of what a good argument is that leaves room for non-monotonic logic. And, you know, there has been a lot of work being done in that field. But I think, you know, just one notion of a good argument that I think we can all also be happy with would, for example, be one that replaces the notion of guaranteed preservation of truth, as it were, with a notion of guaranteed preservation of, say, rational acceptance. So one way of thinking about what a good argument is is just there are no way for someone to accept the premises without also accepting the conclusion if that person is rational, fully informed, etc., etc. And I mean, that's, of course, something which has to be cached on the level of details. But as it turns out, that kind of notion of what a good argument is, in fact, does allow for monotonicity failures, because it may very well be that you're rationally accepting a certain claim, say, but you're no longer accepting it if you learn some additional stuff. So I think one issue then is, is just not so much whether or not we can make sense of non-monotonic logic. I think it's pretty clear we can. 
though some revisions have to be made to how we think about what a good argument is, I think the question more is, why would we want such a thing as non-monotonic logic in the first place? So monotonic logic is working under a certain conception of what makes a piece of reasoning good rather than bad. And the property we've been talking about is that if you have an argument that's good in this monotonic sense of good, then it remains good. That is to say, the conclusion continues to follow from the premises, regardless of what additional information you have. And that's a very intuitive property of a good argument. Why would we want to give that up? So like, can you give us an example of an argument that seems intuitively like it's still good in some way or other, even though it lacks this property? Yeah, so it's not going to pertain to Marshall flu cases. So I'm sorry to say that you know, if you have the information in the Martian flu case, you are going to die within 48 hours, regardless of what kind of additional information you're going to get. I think the, the motivation behind going non-monotonic pertains to you know, a large fragment of everyday reasoning. And I think you know, it's very important to recognize that there are quite a lot of lines of argument or lines of reasoning that we're pursuing in everyday life, which seem to have a non-monotonic flavor to them as opposed to a monotonic flavor. So let me give you one classical example and then you know, make a case that there is even more importance to non-monotonic reasoning than you might have thought. So a classical case which you might like or not like involves Tweety the bird. So suppose that you told that Tweety is a bird. You also know that birds fly then the information you have seems to license the inference that Tweety flies. That seems to be like a good line of reasoning. But now suppose that I give you the additional bit of information that Tweety is not only a bird, but in fact is a penguin. Then it seems no longer to follow that Tweety flies. In fact, now you have every reason to believe that Tweety does not fly because penguins don't fly. So here we have an, an inference, namely the Tweety flies from a set of premises, namely the Tweety is a bird and the birds fly, that is defeated by an additional bit of information, namely that Tweety is not only a bird, but is in fact a penguin. So that is one specific case of non-monotonic reasoning. What is important here is that it involves what is sometimes called these defeasible generalizations, such as birds fly, so the, you know, statements that have an air of truth to them that seem to also license certain kind of inferences, but allow for exceptions. And that is one of the classical motivations for going non-monotonic, namely that you are able to give a logic for inferences that are licensed by defeasible generalizations. Now, I think, you know, you might think this is just a very special, you know, very parochial uh, kind of reasoning and, you know, maybe we shouldn't really reason that much on the basis of defeasible generalizations anyway, but I think one of the most fascinating developments in the field has been the observation that there is a striking parallel between the line of reasoning that I presented earlier and the kind of reasoning that is involved when we try to figure out what to do, what we ought to do in everyday life. So, very popular case that everybody can probably um, sympathize with is that suppose that you've promised your friend to meet her for lunch 
then the fact that you've promised seems to give you good reason to think that you ought to meet her for lunch because you ought to keep your promises. So, but now suppose that on the way to your appointment, you see that there is a drowning child and in order to save that child, you would have to miss your lunch appointment. Then it seems given in this scenario, it is no longer the case that you ought to keep your lunch appointment with your friend. Instead, what you ought to do is to save the drowning child. So what we have here is one of these cases which involves what we might call prima facie obligations, right? You know, the, the fact that you promised to meet a friend for lunch together with general normative principles like you ought to keep your promises, we, I think, can all agree is true, seems to license a certain inference, namely the inference to the conclusion that you ought to keep your appointment, so you better get going. But if I give you an additional bit of information, namely that there is a drowning child, and in order to help that drowning child, you have to miss your appointment, or you can't do both, it seems that you know this kind of additional information defeats the inference to the conclusion that you ought to keep your lunch appointment. Instead, what you ought to do is not keep your lunch appointment and instead save the drowning child. So the point being here is that there is, you know, like an interesting parallel here between kind of reasoning with defeasible generalizations that originally motivated non-monotonic logic and the kind of reasoning with obligations that has kept ethicists off the streets for a while, namely kind of reasoning with prima facie obligations, which are to some extent defeasible obligations. And I think all of that gives it at least some defeasible motivation, if you like, to be very interested in non-monotonic logic and its applications, um, its scope and its limits, if you like. Okay, so in both the Tweety is a bird case and in the lunch date interrupted by drowning child case, it seems like part of what's going on is that we make these generalizations and then the world complicates them for us. You know, our generalizations are somehow only approximate or they can be defeated in certain ways. So is that the proper topic of non-monotonic logic? Are non-monotonic inferences really those that crop up when we make these kind of maybe hasty or speculative generalizations? Or does it happen elsewhere too? Yes and no. I think the fact that we reason apparently successfully with, you know, defeasible generalizations, defeasible obligations, if you like, gives one motivation for being interested in non-monotonic logic. Because the alternative, I mean, one of the alternatives that you might pursue is just that these kind of arguments are just simply not good arguments. And we shouldn't rely on defeasible generalizations less obligations in drawing any kind of conclusions. So that, I think, would ban a lot of things that we do in everyday life just from the study of logic or from you know, any kind of enterprise of arriving at a formally rigorous conception of what's going on, which is a fine conception, but you know, basically closes off a very interesting area of research. So defeasible generalizations slash obligations are certainly one important source of interest in non-monotonic reasoning. But I think, in fact, that, and this is actually a, one of the issues that I find very interesting, is that a case can be made, in fact, that 
non-monotonicity in reasoning is a much more general phenomenon that cannot be reduced to reasoning with defeasible generalizations or obligations, i.e. it's not something that can be reduced to reasoning with principles that allow for exceptions. Um, and I think this is actually like a non-trivial claim that I think raises a lot of very interesting issues. So what would be an example of non-monotonic reasoning that maybe isn't obviously a case of reasoning from a defeasible generalization? Well, there is a scenario or you know, a puzzle case that has received a lot of attention in the recent literature, which basically pertains to reasoning about what we ought to do under certain uncertainty about what is the case. So there are, you know, facts that are relevant for what we ought to do, but we don't really know how they pan out. So this is what is called like the, the miners scenario. So suppose that you are in a situation in which 10 miners you know, might be in one of two shafts, either the A shaft or the B shaft. So they all are in the same shaft because they like to hang out with each other. Yeah. But as it happens now, like water threatens to flood the shafts. And we have sandbags to block one of the two shafts, but you know, times are tough, so not enough to block both shafts. And so what happens is you know, the decision problem that you're facing is the following one. If you block one of the shafts, all the water will go into the other shaft, drowning everyone who is in that shaft. And if we decide not to block any of the shafts, then the water will spread evenly and only basically one miner, the one who is like lowest in the shaft, is going to drown. So the decision problem that you're facing is basically that you could either block one of the shafts, thereby having a 50-50 chance that you're going to save everyone or kill everyone. Or you could block none of the shafts, which is guaranteed to save nine miners. So, question, given this bit of all this kind of information that I gave you, what should you do? And I think the overwhelming majority of people are intuitively going to say that you should block neither shaft. So the information that I've provided seems to entail that you ought to block neither shaft. But now suppose that I give you an additional bit of information, namely that the miners are in shaft A. Then you're going to be very inclined to say that you should block A, that it is now wrong to block neither shaft, but rather what you ought to do is to block shaft A. So here's another case in which and this is just, you know, the first observation. The first observation is just, this is another case in which it seems to be the case that additional bit of information seems to defeat your original judgment about what ought to be done. In the absence of any information about the miner's whereabout, you believe that we ought to block neither shaft. and give you the additional information that the miner's on shaft A. And then it's very plausible to think that from that information it seems to follow that you ought to block shaft A. So this is controversial, I'm the analysis of this kind of scenario, but this is arguably a case in which non-monotonic reasoning is involved. Okay, so let me get this straight. We've got one inference based on the information that the miners are in one shaft or the other, but we don't know where. And in that case, it seems like 
it really does follow that we ought to block neither shaft, even though that's going to kill one of them, because we don't know where they are. So if we just guess, we have a 50-50 shot of killing everybody. So that makes sense. That seems like a good line of reasoning. And then the second inference is an inference from additional information. And it seems like the conclusion that we ought to block neither shaft no longer follows once we're told where the miners are. And so this is a case of non-monotonic reasoning because it lacks that property we were talking about before. Namely, when you add information, the conclusion no longer follows. So it's non-monotonic. Yes, that is, I think, a very intuitive perspective on the issues involved, though you know, I should add that a lot of discussions have happened about this kind of scenario which may highlight other ways of looking at the issue. So it's not uncontroversial, but um, it is certainly an intuitive perspective on the issues involved. And I think what is worth highlighting about this case is that if you believe that there is some non-monotonic reasoning involved, you're going to have very hard time um, reducing or categorizing this non-monotonicity phenomenon as just another case of reasoning with principles that allow for exceptions. And here's why. So suppose that you just wanted to reduce the scenario to the case we just discussed earlier with the lunch appointment. There we basically, what was going on was that you had an obligation to meet your friend for lunch unless you happened to run into an exceptional circumstance, namely one in which missing your appointment is necessary in order to fulfill a more pressing obligation, say. So that clearly is not what's going on in the minor scenario that we discussed. We can't say you ought to block neither shift unless they are an A, and that you, we ought to block neither shift unless they are an B, because we also know that they are an A or an B. So if you wanted to reduce this to just another case of where an obligation holds unless you're in an exceptional circumstance, the scenario is described in such a way that you're guaranteed to be in an exceptional circumstance, namely the, you know, that the minors are an A or an B. So then you would really have a hard time explaining why on earth the obligation to log neither shaft should hold in the first place. And I think, you know, there are two possible reactions to that. The one is, well, that just shows that actually non-monotonicity is not involved in the scenario in the first place because I want to think about non-monotonicity as something which is grounded in exceptional circumstances. Another, what I take to be more interesting option, is that we start considering the possibility of non-monotonicity being a much more broader, widespread phenomenon in everyday discourse and reasoning, and especially in reasoning about what ought to be done, um, than what is allowed if we were just to think of non-monotonicity as being the kind of stuff that happens when we reason with principles that allow for exceptions. So I think a much more interesting option is to look for a broader conceptual foundation for the phenomenon of non-monotonicity in discourse and reasoning. So if non-monotonic reasoning is really concerned with something more general than just reasoning in the light of defeasible general principles, 
what is that more general thing? What's the phenomenon that we're really trying to get at when we look at non-monotonic reasoning? Yeah, so I think a very simple conceptual driver behind non-monotonic logic or non-monotonic reasoning is that the goodness of an argument is not only sensitive to the presence of information, as you have it in classical logic, but also to the absence of information. And I think, you know, that is, I mean, that's a very cute idea. (laughs) And, you know, so one way in which an argument may be good because certain information is absent is because I haven't given you any information indicating that you're dealing with an exceptional scenario. So that's why you can conclude that Tweety flies from Tweety is a bird and birds fly because, you know, I don't give you any information that we're having an exceptional circumstance. Once I give you the information that Tweety is, in fact, an exceptional bird, namely a penguin, the information no longer follows. So, and, you know, similarly, in the lunch date scenario, the idea is that you ought to keep your lunch appointment as long as I don't give you any information, additional information to the conclu- indicating that you are in an exceptional situation. Right? So one way in which, say, deontic reasoning may be sensitive to the absence of information is because we're reasoning with norms that allow for exceptions, so the, i.e. that license certain claims about what you ought to do unless you are in an exceptional circumstance. But I think it's very intuitive that there are cases in which deontic reasoning is sensitive to the absence of information in other ways. So the minor scenario seems to be just one of these cases. And the, you know, the fact that you ought to block neither shaft, we're just inclined to say that just because we don't know where the miners are. We don't have any information about the miners' whereabouts, and not sufficient information. Once this lack of information is removed by giving you additional information about the exact location of the where- miners' whereabouts, the claim that you ought to block neither chef no longer seems to follow. So I think the general strategy of inquiry that I would propose is to really take this idea of non-monotonicity as just claiming that good arguments are also sometimes sensitive to the absence of information and see, you know, consider the variety of how deontic reasoning may be sensitive to the absence of information. So one reason why that is is that because norms are defeasible in the sense that they allow for exceptions, another potential source of non-monotonicity is that norms may be sensitive to the information that is available to the people making decisions about what ought to be done, which is what might be going on in the minor scenario. And another potential source, which we haven't really explored here, but you know, I'm just putting out there, is that obligations, certain obligations that you have may entail other obligations unless these obligations are violated. So that goes back to this famous slogan from uh, Chisholm that our misdeeds may have a lot of very interesting implications. Among other things, they may create other duties, duties that haven't existed before we met misdeeds, maybe the obligation to apologize. 
And they, in fact, they may also turn certain obligations into wrong things to do. So I think that is another potential source, even though, you know, for we haven't really explored that in here. But a really worthwhile project is then to consider the variety in which norms and obligations in everyday life are sensitive to, if you like, the absence of information for their applicability. So one way of getting a more broader conception of non-monotonicity in reasoning about what we ought to do is to become clearer of the variety in which everyday norms and obligations depend on the absence of information in their applicability. Why do you think it's important to get clear about the way the principles behind our moral reasoning work and in this particular method, right, this sort of formal logical approach and, you know, characterizing various kinds of reasoning in pretty precise ways and, and looking at, well, you know, what do these various examples of failure of monotonicity have in common and what can we learn about reasoning from that? Why do you think it's important to study these things? So I think it's uncontroversial that non-monotonicity is a very important aspect of everyday human reasoning. One good reason for why we should be interested in formally rigorous models of this kind of human reasoning is because these formally rigorous models are important steps toward teaching a computer to reason in the same way. So I think it is an important contribution to making progress towards artificial intelligence. Now, if I'm right, and non-monotonicity is an important aspect about our everyday reasoning about what we ought to do, then I think you can actually make a case that it becomes even more important to get clear on how this reasoning works in a way that we can teach a computer how to do it. Because... Let's be honest, artificial intelligence, powerful artificial intelligence is going to happen sooner rather than later. And if Terminator Skynet is any guide, and we have really, really strong interests in the product being at least somehow able to reason about what ought to be done in a way that is you know, similar to the way we do, because otherwise... You know, things might actually turn out to be uh, very enjoyable and with very enjoyable accents, but, you know, not too good for the creator's well-being. <laughs> Malta Villa, thanks so much for joining us, and we hope that you'll be back in a later episode to save us from uh, the robot apocalypse. I'll be back. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's l u c i a n, lucian.uchicago.edu/blogs/elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.